This is the ACR 2023 Daily Podcast. Here you'll listen to faculty recordings, discussions, and interviews taken from the ACR Convergence Meeting in San Diego. I hope you enjoy this recording. Hi, this is Dr. Artie Kavanaugh. I'm at ACR 2023 Convergence. A lot of interesting abstracts presented here. I'm going to talk about one. is Abstract 25 entitled Relationship Between Genetic Variants in Cannabinoid Receptor 2 and Self-Reported Effectiveness of Cannabis for Pain Management in Rheumatoid Arthritis. Of course, a hot topic for all practicing rheumatologists. A lot of patients want to know, is there an impact of cannabis on pain? And the data have been quite mixed. Some people say that it helps. It's hard to prove that in large studies, that it's effective for large groups of patients. But there are some people who do seem to respond. These data address maybe some of that heterogeneity. So this is from the Forward Registry, previously the National Data Bank. And they identified a group of people who said that they had reported cannabis use and then asked them if they felt that it helped or not. And they picked people for whom they also had genetic sampling and were able to look at several SNPs, single nucleotide polymorphisms, in genes relevant to the cannabinoid receptor. And they did find, interestingly, that there seemed to be an association between certain SNPs that were a small percentage of the population and the lack of response to cannabis. So I thought this was very interesting. It's self-reported data and it's remote, but the genetic analyses are sound. And as I said, we see heterogeneity in how people think cannabis helps with their pain. Pain is incredibly important to patients with rheumatic diseases. That's why they come to see us. So every little bit of explanation we have for the pain, but more importantly, everything we could potentially offer as something to help with the pain is certainly welcome. And the more we learn about which patients might be right for which therapies, the better we do. This is Dr. Artie Kavanaugh at ACR 2023 Convergence in San Diego. Hi, it's Dr. Artie Kavanaugh coming to you from ACR 2023 Convergence in San Diego. Lots of good abstracts and posters presented and on a lot of important topics. I want to talk about one abstract, 387, and this looks at the potential role for high-sensitivity cardiac troponin T and cardiovascular events in rheumatoid arthritis. So this is from uh, the uh, cohort, longitudinal cohort of RA patients, and it deals with an important issue, that is which of our patients might have a greater risk of having MACE events. This was brought to the forefront by the oral surveillance study most recently, the 1133 study, where it seemed that there may have been an imbalance with different treatments and the occurrence of MACE events particularly in people who had risk factors, people over the 65, people who had ever smoked, uh, people with established cardiac risk factors. So in this analysis, what they did is to look at highly sensitive troponin T as a marker potentially of cardiac injury. It certainly is something that our colleagues use to identify people who've had actual damage, such as a myocardial infarction. But if you look more careful, you'll find that quite a number of people may have elevated levels. Do these have any prognostic significance? Well, this abstract looked at that and said that they may. So if you have people who have detectable cardiac troponin T 
the highly sensitive one, so more people will have it. Uh, I think in this cohort they had about 30% of people who did have that. They indeed seem to be more likely, even adjusted for other cardiac risk factors, to suffer MACE events. So is this something we're going to see measured in the future? Might it be measured as part of clinical trials to more specifically delineate cardiac risk? We'll have to see. But it was an interesting idea and I think a well-done abstract and important information. So this is Dr. Artie Kavanaugh coming to you, ACR 2023 Convergence. HiRoomNow.com. I'm Dr. Rachel Tate from West Palm Beach, Florida, and I am joined by Dr. Katherine Bakewell from Utah, and we are currently in San Diego, California for ACR 2023. So we did a great update, which we really want you to watch, on the treatment options and updates from ACR 2023 for our spa patients. But now we're going to highlight something that is your passion and something you've done research in, which is imaging for our spa patients. So tell me a little bit, Catherine, about what we're talking about today. Thank you, and thank you for having me. This truly is my favorite topic in the world. If you're going to say imaging and spondyloarthritis, I will be there front row with my pen out. So this has been a great meeting. I want to highlight a couple different speakers first. So Dr. Alexis Ogdi out of UPenn. First, she gave us a fabulous review course lecture on the spondyloarthropathies, and then she and several others put together pearls and pitfalls in diagnosing non-radiographic axial spa, which can be kind of a black box still for a lot of people out in clinical practice. She talked to us about the differential diagnosis of non-radiographic XPA, and I think it's important for us in this nebulous realm of MRI findings to bear in mind that there are things that can trick us. And two of the most important that she highlighted, in addition to things like degenerative disease, were DISH, or that diffuse idiopathic skeletal hyperostosis, always a mouthful. Yes. And there is an update to the guidelines on that that says, we used to say, you know, if the DISH doesn't affect the SI joints. But now we know that it does. So this is an update oh. for all of us. Unfortunately, that differentiator is not real because you can get enthesophytes, bony bridging, hyperostosis in the SI joints with DISH. And so we, we want to sort of help differentiate that from our patients with spondyloarthritis. That's fascinating. Isn't it, though? We need to be aware of that. That's really, that's an ACR best for me. Thank you. Yeah. I know. I was getting, yeah. It really caught my eye and ear. Another differentiating thing that we have to bear in mind is the osteitis condensans ilii. And it is for a year after delivery. So it starts during pregnancy that we can get the changes of sacroiliitis on yes. MRI. But that can persist in high prevalence for a year postpartum. And so we want to be not fooled by that. You can still get the MRI in certain circumstances, but you really unfortunately can't trust, start to trust it in that sense for the inflammatory bone marrow edema changes for up to a year uh, postpartum. Yes. Do you watch those patients then closely? I mean, are you checking that imaging that early? So I say you, early, but it, it may not be for that patient. It may not be for that patient. And this is where you, you have to really put together your whole clinical picture. And so this is where Dr. Ogdi was saying, hey, look, I'm not telling you necessarily don't image in that time. If you have a patient where you need that image and it may help you guide decision, then absolutely check it. But you want to check it again okay. a year postpartum or more okay. because you may be surprised at what went away. Um, that is a great <laughs> lecture, and I'm going to go back again and review it. Is it that's the fun of yeah. the on-demand. Yeah. I love I that. <laughs> yes, ACR, please keep up the on-demand. But we, she also highlighted for us the increasing prevalence of non-radiographic. So bear in mind a little history lesson all the way back to 1980. 
AXPA was 100% radiographic. It was all AS, right? So by about the year 2000, we said there was about 20% of a diagnosis of non-radiographic, 2020, 50-50, that's where we are now. But it begs the question, by 2040, could we be looking at 80% non-radiographic as our imaging modalities get more sensitive? Wow. So I thought that was fun. So next I want to talk a little bit about Leanne Gensler's talk. Uh, she did a fabulous job as well. And she, again, highlighted the same issues around osteitis condensans ilii. And, and this is a separate topic brought in um, AI. So artificial mm -hmm. intelligence reading of our images up and coming. And she showed us a study where AI, now the gold standard, were our most trained musculoskeletal radiologists looking at sacroiliac joint MRIs and compared that to the AI read for inflammatory and structural changes and showed us that AI did really pretty well. Wow. So it's not 100%. It's not to the level of the gold standard of the MSK radiologist, but stay tuned on that because I think we're going to see more and more integration of that in clinical care. And remember in those instances where our MRI is equivocal that a low-dose CT can help us differentiate those structural changes. That's huge. I thought so too. Mm -hmm. So very last thing I want to leave you with, and I know I'm going long. No, um, you're perfect. <laughs> I could sit and listen to you all day. It's so sweet. It's true. This is, you know, I, uh, this is my fun stuff. So yeah. let's let's talk ultrasound and enthesitis. I will mention one abstract. So this was uh, by Maria Antonia Diagostino, Mata as we lovingly call her, yeah. uh, from the ultimate trial. So this is abstract number 2243. She showed us in this trial, so this was a, a, the, the you know, primary trial was already released looking at secukinumab treatment in psoriatic arthritis patients with a primary outcome of the GLOSS or the Cinevitis yeah. score by ultrasound. It was a positive trial. But in this abstract, it, it correlated side by side the SPARC or a clinical enthesitis index next to an ultrasonographic index. And unfortunately, there was poor correlation, which for me mm -hmm. highlights the importance of ultrasound. Yep. That the clinical enthesitis, we're measuring tenderness, but tenderness is not always inflammation. You're right. And so that discrepancy, I think, underscores the importance of both forms of evaluation. And I will leave you last again with a, a more to come. You know, let's talk next year about the duet trial. So this is the Diagnostic Ultrasound Enthesitis Tool. This is a, a work by Grappa, led by Lehi Ader, uh, Sibel Iden, and Gurjeet Kaley. And they have enrolled, it's 17 different sites, eight different countries. These are ultrasound um, experts in psoriatic arthritis comparing psoriatic arthritis, psoriasis without arthralgias, and healthy controls with osteoarthritis fibromyalgia, and asking the question, can we develop an ultrasonographic diagnostic tool for patients with psoriatic arthritis. And so all of the ultrasound data, it's finished and rolling, it's being analyzed. We will have more on that next year. I'll just leave you with this little tidbit, which is that 63% of the patients in the clinical trial for psoriatic arthritis had their therapy changed as a result of going through that systematic ultrasound examination. Um, and, and so I think that highlights the importance of looking at ultrasound in this way. Absolutely. Well, I'm an ultrasound aficionado like you are. So I really appreciate it. And we are going to touch base on this next year for imaging and all things spondy and all things PSA. So Love I really appreciate you. Thank you so much, Dr. Bakewell, for being here. And stay tuned to RoomNow.com for more from San Diego for ACR 2023. Thank you for having me. Hi, it's Dr. Artie Kavanaugh coming to you for RoomNow from ACR Convergence 2023. Big meeting, lots of posters, lots of interesting information. There's one abstract, as happens sometimes, that really gets your interest and uh, 
there yet there's some things that you still want to see more fleshed out about. This is 294, and the abstract is about the impact of tofacitinib treatment on skeletal muscle in rheumatoid arthritis. So one of the things that we've noticed with our jackanibs is that when we treat patients and we monitor laboratory values, we see an increase in CPK. And that doesn't necessarily seem to be pathologic, and we don't see weakness, we don't see frank myositis. So what do we do with that? Well, this is an interesting study. Small number, it was the, called the RAMRA study. Open label, single center, um, 15 patients who had at least one other risk factor for muscle weakness, sarcopenia, which is a big problem. Uh, inanition, wasting, bad things which lead to frailty in patients with RA. What they did was measure muscles, and they did that by looking at MRI before and after treatment. And what they found out is that it did seem that the JAK inhibitor therapy, in this case it was with tofacitinib, may have had an anabolic effect on muscle, which might explain the high CPK, insofar as that some muscles seem to be larger as a course of treatment. And there's a molecular rationale that could explain that. So I think with the specific therapies that we have. They, they do target things that we understand, but how the body interacts in these complex cascades, we don't know. So I think that these data are intriguing, and I'd certainly love to see a follow-up with further analysis into it. So for Room Now, this is Dr. Artie Cavan coming to you from ACR Convergence 23.3 in San Diego. I'm Anthony Chan from London, United Kingdom reporting here for Room Now that's in San Diego ACR 23. Today is another uh, day where we've uh, seen a lot more presentations here at the meeting. And one of the fields of rheumatology that has uh, certainly been expanding is the use of ultrasound, in particular musculoskeletal ultrasound. But one of the issues that we want to discuss is about the teaching and the delivery of ultrasound uh, to the users. How do we find a way that we can deliver teaching in a more effective manner uh, for users. So I'm here today joined by Dr. Sebastian uh, Valentin Schaffer, uh, who is from the um, University of Bonn in Germany, and he has presented today a very nice work uh, in the abstract number 2079 uh, on the use of teledidactic way of uh, implementing teaching versus uh, on-site teaching. So Sebastian uh, Valentin, sorry, uh, welcome Thank to you. today's uh, meeting, and I wonder whether you could take us through yeah. the work that you've been doing. That's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. Nice to, nice to be able to present uh, our abstract. Well, what we did, uh, we have been implementing point-of-care ultrasound uh, at the University of Bonn. I'm the ultrasound director and also the head of rheumatology. So I really tr tr try to make rheumatology as sexy as possible for medical students. And we have an ultrasound curriculum which is published, the MUTE study, musculoskeletal ultrasound in dermatology, which was focused on dermatologists to learn the most important ultrasound planes which there are in musculoskeletal ultrasound. And we further tested this in an, another study which is already published, the PSOZONE study, where dermatologists used musculoskeletal ultrasound to early diagnose psoriatic arthritis and it really worked quite well. And what we did now in our current abstract, we used this ultrasound curriculum to test teledidactic versus on-campus musculoskeletal ultrasound training um, in medical students. And how we did this, we did the pre-OSCE, so an objective structured clinical examination, a practical exam of ultrasound skills before the training and after the training. And we had one group assigned with 30 medical students doing on-campus training and the other one doing solely teledidactic training. In both training courses, 
we involved peer tutors to just decrease the level of, of interaction from student to student. And we had experts like me who were online and were also available for deeper tasks. Now you ask yourself, perhaps teledidactic, how does it work? And it's, it's not working, ultrasound is a practical skill. It is working because every student got his Butterfly IQ portable ultrasound probe and an iPad and they got it home and they were training during these online sessions with their student students or with their friends. The ultrasound planes, we had the peer tutor who was just improving the plane, put it right, left, deeper, increased B-mode and so on. And at the end of this course, which went over 12 weeks, we did another practical examination and we found amazing, outstanding results. The on-campus training had 90% of the possible highest uh, degree they could achieve and the teledidactic achieved even 92%. So numerically, teledidactic ultrasound training was even better. And that is amazing. I mean, we have to go with the time. We have to give students the possibility to teach them teledidactic if they want to, especially if you have students who live far away. They don't have to come to the university. They can train wherever they wanted. And we had the flipped classroom. That means medical students had the possibility to be online whenever they wanted and look at the different teaching courses and just reinforce their skills. That's an excellent result, a very high concordance between your on-site and true. your teledidactic. Um, in terms of the modules that you're teaching, uh, in the poster you talk about musculoskeletal exactly. ultrasound. Do you think there's a possibility of expanding this to other regions of the body? Yeah, definitely. We, we have done this for ultrasound of the abdomen, the thyroid glands and the abdominal vessels. It's the TELOS-1 study, which is published in the European Journal of Ultrasound. Uh, which was solely teledidactic because it was the pandemic and uh, we also already conducted the TELUS 2 study teledidactic ultrasound also abdominal vessels and thyroid which is currently submitted for publication mm -hmm. so I really think this teledidactic teaching is possible we have to go with the time and we have to be attractive for our medical students and also young doctors in order to de deliver the best teaching at every location so it's amazing because uh, it, it also uh, covers acute uh, aspects of uh, yes. care, so acute of care, course. for example, emergency care. Yes. As I suppose for rheumatology, the acute emergency would be the giant cell arthritis, Definitely. GCA. So tell, tell me, is this applicable in the training for that yes. part of the um, uh, condition? Yeah, that's a very, very good question. Ultrasound is the first diagnostic imaging tool we use now for diagnosis of GCA. It has been implemented in the EULA guidelines recommendations. I was also a member of it, so it's very important. And we have published a paper on this on a patient's prospective study. We performed a blinded evaluation of the temporal artery with a point-of-care device and a high-end device, and giant cell arteritis was diagnosed in every case correctly. Not in every vessel, but in every case. So it works. I still see a place for the high-end devices, but really for point-of-care, we want to know if it's really GCA point of care also works with these devices. So um, it's, um, you know, it cut across many different regions of the body and many different conditions as well. What does the future hold with the teledidactic um, training? Yeah. Where can we take this for, uh, further for, for our community in rheumatology? Sure. I think the biggest hassle at the moment is that we cannot deliver ultrasound training at every location in Europe or even across the world. And I think this is the biggest implication that we can offer ultrasound training whatever abdomen, thyroid, or for us, of course, vessels and joints at every location possible, even in China or in Korea or wh wherever, 
we can teach these doctors and improve medical care and we don't, do not have to come then to our countries to learn it. So that's, uh, you know, this is the whole idea of moving knowledge and what, not moving Definitely. people yeah. so that this can be done. Yeah. So I suppose in the long term, how do we standardize the, the, learn, the teaching across different yeah. countries and different regions? Will there be an exam that is set or how do you know yeah. that they've achieved the standard that you set them out to do? Standardization is very important and it's a very important aspect. I think important is before standardization really publishing curricula which we have done and then adhering to these curricula. And the practical examination we did is an objective structure clinical examination in OSCE which is completely standardized. Everyone is asked the same questions, do this, do that, start the machine, show us this section, do you see effusion, what is your clinical interpretation and this is very standardized so this can be really translated to every location the only thing you have to do is translate it perhaps to another language if English is the problem but normally this could, would, I would not expect uh, any hustles yeah so this is a, is a major improvement in terms of the delivery and innovation which are very keen especially we've been discussing about digital health and digital toolkits so how we can improve the spread of this condition um, so for our viewers you know, as we kind of wrap it up, what would be your take-home message about your, your poster that you presented? You. What you. were your take-home messages okay. for our readers? Yeah, I think my, our take-home message is this teledidactic training works and also an ultrasound. There are these people who say ultrasound is a practical skill. You need to come where and you need to learn it practically. No, it is possible to learn a teledidactic if you have a good teacher, if you have the appropriate machinery like we had. So they really, you can project the live ultrasound sections to the tutors and then it really works. So we look forward to hearing more about your work in the future, future meetings, congresses, and as you advance and really champion <laughs> ultrasound, I think we've never met such a passionate person who, Thank and you. I met you today and uh, this is why we feel that uh, this would be a good uh, way of trying to deliver teaching because it's always difficult to get everybody to come in one-to-one -one location. And so today we have learned something new. So thank you very thank much you. for your time. Thanks Again, I would me. advise you to have a look at Abstract 2079 uh, from Dr. Valentin Sheffer. Thank you very much. Thank you very much as well. Bye. Hi, Room Now. I'm Dr. Rachel Tate with Dr. Catherine Bakewell, who's one of my mentors. Um, from Utah. We are at ACR 2023 in San Diego and I have the distinct pleasure of talking to Dr. Bakewell about something we really love which is treatment options for patients in spondyloarthritis and specifically what have you learned during this ACR 2023? First, thank you so much for having me. It has been a really exciting meeting and it's my privilege to get to talk about one of my favorite topics. So I'm going to tell you about four different abstracts and then something that I think will be fun to watch as it unfolds. First, there was an abstract. This is number 0520. This was Sophia Ramiro who presented an abstract on ixekizumab in ankylosing spondylitis. And it was looking at if patients achieved an ASDAS clinically important improvement by week 12 or 24, that they were highly likely to attain either inactive disease or low disease activity by week 52. Now you remember the old story back many years ago with sertilizumab that we said, hey, if you have an improvement by week 12, stick with the product, you're going to continue to see improvement, but if you don't, then go ahead and switch up therapies, right? And so this is a continuation, I think, in that same theme of here with ixekizumab, if you get that clinically important improvement as early as week 12 or week 24, then hang with it because you've got a really good likelihood of being in low disease activity by a year. So I like that. Next abstract, Jeff Curtis, this is 0530. 
looks at upadacitinib and AS, and this is in the whole era of wearable technology. So they cool. put these wearables, step counters, get your steps in people, right? And ankylosing spondylitis. So this was from the Select Axis 2 trial, and they were able to show a 20% improvement in the step counts of patients with AS with upadacitinib treatment relative to placebo. What a different kind of outcome, right? Yeah. An objective tracker of patient activity. I love that. So next is an abstract from Martin Rudwallet. So this is 0521. This looked at bimikizumab in the B-Mobile 1 and 2 trials, both radiographic and non-radiographic AXPA, and it was looking at work productivity. And it showed there was a difference in presenteeism. Don't you love that word? <laughs> yeah. Well, tell me a little bit more about presenteeism. So what does that mean to you? This is something we are guilty of in medicine, right? Yes. It's showing up. It's not absenteeism. It's showing up at work but not doing your best. You exactly. show up when you're ill, when you're not able to give it 100% um, or anywhere near 100% for that matter. So, so they showed a difference <laughs> in presenteeism, work productivity, and activity impairment for patients treated with bimikizumab relative to placebo at week 16 with further improvements by week 52. So awesome. here patients are really truly functioning better uh, and showing up at work feeling their best. That makes a big difference. So next is gonna be abstract 0529. This is Sabine Kugler. And I just wanted to say, I do believe there is a growing interest and emphasis as there should be on sex and gender differences in response to therapy. Yes. So this looked at secukinumab in patients with active axial spinal arthritis, and this was from the ACULA study. So this is 621 patients from a German cohort, and they used machine learning to cluster the patients by baseline characteristics and then response to secukinumab at a year. They found the men had higher CRP, the women tended to have higher ASAS health index, ASAS HI scores. But by a year with secukinumab, those differences had resolved. And so here, at least, there's one study that shows an equal response by gender. But I think the definitive trial on this is yet to come. And this is what I will leave you with. This is the SAGE trial. So this is run out of Grappa uh, with Leahy Ader at the helm. And they had 121 different applicants. Okay. To be a part of the study, they selected 36 different sites. And it is a prospective study, so they're enrolling patients with psoriatic arthritis, looking at the sex and gender differences in response to therapy. So far for the patients enrolled, about half of them are on a TNF inhibitor, a quarter on a 17, maybe 20% on a jack, about 8.5% on a 23. And follow this over time. We're going to see how the different genders respond, and they're going to hopefully give us some insight into how much of this is related to inflammation, sex hormones, social support, network, that kind of thing. So I think that's going to be really exciting to see what that shows us. Well, I hope we get a, a cut on that next year, too. I mean, AI and and wearables, right? We all wear wearables at this point. It's true. So why, why can't we be using it <laughs> to further what we do, right? We're all attached to our phones, so this is good. I'm going to be interested to see what happens with this age trial as well so hopefully we'll have a new um new more new and more information on that next year I so like now me too thank you of course thank you <laughs> no dr bakewell thank you um and check out roomnow.com for this and additional updates from acr 2023